Hello, welcome to Unrefined Women Podcast. I am your co-host, Margaret. And I am your other co-host, Agnes. And our podcast is an ongoing dialogue between two sisters on the topics of spirituality, religious trauma, mental health, family dynamics, and feminism. Today, we have a guest joining us, my friend Ishtar. I've actually known Ishtar for a couple of years. My partner Casey found him when he was interviewed on a really good podcast called Buddha at the Gas Bump, and we really connected with his work. Both Casey and I have had um, astrology charts done by Ishtar. So we really hope you enjoy this episode. I love him. He's such an amazing, beautiful human being and just has so much wisdom to share. Ishtar, born Thomas Howell, is a meditation teacher, a Shia monk, gardener, writer, and intuitive astrologer. At age 13, he was in a car accident that took his mother's life and initiated a near-death experience that brought about a profound experience with Samadhi that in the subsequent months he experienced right along with an intense process of grieving. Ishtar went on to adopt meditation practices and soon after discovered Ashaya's ascension meditation which led him to join an ashram in Oregon. In 2008, he left his monastic organization and then took an extended break from meditation teaching. Ishtar currently teaches meditation and serves as a spiritual guide, helping people cultivate awareness and relax into presence as a lived experience. Since 2015, he has also been working as an intuitive and an astrologer, with a primary focus on helping people align more completely with their soul's purpose. Ishtar currently resides in Portugal with his lovely wife, Luna. To access his work, we have linked his websites in the show notes. In this episode, Ishtar really shared with us a lot about his life, and um, I just find everything he's experienced so fascinating, and I love how he really went into it with such beautiful detail. I have to say, his storytelling skills on point. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like at the end of the episode when we wrapped everything up, he he gave us such a reminder that, you know, every at any second everything that you know could be gone from your life and the only way to just really truly be present in your life is to spread love and accept love in your life I feel like after we recorded this episode it completely changed like a lot of my perspective in life in general yeah I just felt so nourished after this episode and yeah his message is about love like it's not just that like we can love and be loved but that we are love and all of that is within each of us absolutely and I hope you guys can move forward with this episode with a little bit more love in your life and I hope you enjoy Hello, Ishtar. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you for coming on Unrefined Women Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. It fits because I'm a very unrefined man. So (laughs) we've got the unrefined part in common right there. There we go. And you're tuning in all the way from Portugal. So it's morning for us, but you're already winding down your day right now. Yeah, yeah. The sun is about to say goodbye for for the night, but we couldn't tell because it's rain clouds as far as the eye can see anyhow. Oh, so, so it's like Portland weather for you. Oh, yeah, it's Portland weather. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't you go ahead and start off by just introducing yourself and sharing with the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, as, as you heard, my name's Ishtar, which is definitely not the name that I was 
given by my parents. I, w- I was not uh, uh, given hippie parents of, of a certain disposition. Uh, that name, uh, you know, kind of came along with taking monastic vows, which I did when I was 18. And in many ways that has defined uh, that period of my life has pretty much defined everything that's come after it. But uh, when I was a child, I you know, had in some ways a very normal, whatever that means, kind of upbringing, but also a very strange uh, <laughs> sorts of set of experiences uh, for a, a young kid to be having. Uh, of course, when you're, when you're there and it's, and it's been happening as, as far as back you can remember, you don't think of it as strange. It's just kind of normal. But when I was a, a, like a, a little baby in my crib, uh, before I, you know, learned how to walk and before I could, um, you know, get out of the crib, I, I have memories of going back that far. And I used to just sit in my crib and meditate without knowing that I was meditating. I'd look at the, uh, the curtains in my room where I'd, I'd kind of wait till the sun would rise. And a little bit after the sun would start to come in the windows, that's when my mother would, would, would wake up and come to the room. So it was a, it was a very set routine. Uh, but in, in, the, in those meditations, I felt this just amazing presence I would I would feel in my being that I was I was in the in the the physical constituents of the crib I was in the dresser I would have a sense that I was in my mother and my sister uh, in everything and and that you know kind of lingered in the background even as I was developing this you know an, an ego and a, and a sense of identity that we all do and really 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 get into doing. I suppose around age six or seven, but along with that, I'd see spirits, and uh, I, I think I remember the earliest experience of that is I had this woman, old woman with with really curly hair, white curly hair, which reminded me of my grandma Louise's curly hair. Except this woman was about a foot or so shorter than my grandmother, who was quite tall, and and I wasn't afraid of her for some reason. I was just watching her from my crib. She had this blue nightgown with with a white lace collar she kind of walked by she didn't look at me but i could feel her attention touching mine and i i, I watched as she walked out the back wall of my bedroom um <laughs> i was i was so excited by i've never seen somebody walk through a wall before and you know it got me thinking like when i'm when i'm able to get out of this crib on my own i'm gonna i'm gonna try that and and i never saw that particular uh woman again until about must have been two three four years later when i was sitting with my mother and looking through a a family photo album she came to a a page and there was a a woman with curly hair about so much shorter than my my grandmother with a a blue nightgown and the same patterning and a white lace collar and it was my great-grandmother who died about a year a year and a half before i was born and whom my, my mother always spoke of and said oh it's, it's a shame that you didn't get to meet her because you two, I know you two would have gotten along with each other as far as your personalities go. So that, um, and after that and around that, there was all sorts of other beings coming into the room. But um, that, that all played sort of a, a second fiddle to, you know, when I, when I got older and I had uh, essentially what was a near-death experience that, that coincided with the loss of my mother. And it was, it was the um, heightened uh deeper strata of consciousness that I experienced in, in, in that event that, you know, basically just was turned a switch and, and everything that came after that um, was, was in some ways, even when I wasn't conscious of it, was moving me towards you know, getting back to that space of consciousness, and which, which is 
how I came to uh, take up yoga as a teenager and eventually take up meditation, which I was quite frightened to do uh, for some reason. Med meditation seemed like if I turn if I turn on that tur open that door, I don't think I'm gonna you know if I enter that room. I don't think I'm ever gonna be able to go back to the to the way that I thought I was going to be living, and indeed that was true. And so eventually I, I end up here talking in 2022 on, on, on a podcast uh, after spending the last uh, 20 years or so as, a, you know, essentially a monk and, a, and sometimes a traveling semi-itinerant uh, meditation teacher, uh, you know, going, going here and there around the world and also spending a lot of time in the beautiful Pacific Northwest of the United States, you know, having uh, Oregon as essentially my adopted home state. So you must wow. have been like the world's best baby. <laughs> I think I was actually a pretty good baby, actually. <laughs> you know, Never crying. Uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't cry that much. Uh, that was something that my, my mother told me. Um, and in fact, I kind of, after a certain point, I kind of liked being left alone. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's uh, rare for uh, a baby. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, I had the attachment thing, like like any normal baby would. So like, oh, you know, mommy, mommy, somebody come and take care. And I remember uh, that was there, but I didn't cry much. And and yeah, sometimes you know, even mom would. Um, I, I didn't like the way my parents um, changed my diapers. <laughs> Those are some <laughs> memories. It's like, you know, dad was a little bit too loose on cleaning up uh, the, the bottom, and mom could sometimes be a bit too abrasive. And I was like, oh, I can't wait till I can do this on my own because, you know, at least I'll, I won't have this to deal with. I'll do it. I have my own Goldilocks zone for, <laughs> for going to the bathroom. So, you know, odd memory to have, but that's just when I, I remember being on my back and, you know, like, oh, okay, here it is again. You know, who's, who's on me this time? You know, that's really interesting, though, that you can remember that because I, I mean, I feel like my first memory must have been like five years old. I can't even imagine remembering getting my diaper changed, which was probably Margaret changing my diaper. <laughs> right, probably. <laughs> and then you did mention, you mentioned that when you were a teenager, um, you were scared to begin your journey in meditation. Um, what was your setting when you were a teenager? Were you going to like a traditional public school? Were you surrounded by a lot of people your age? Oh yes, oh yes, uh, yeah. very, very traditional. My, my middle school was a five-minute walk down uh, down a very pretty residential street, so I think I had it pretty nice. And, and high school was was like a mile away, and uh, so it, and very very much regular public schools. Okay, so you, I can imagine like a lot of the fear that you had was you know people in high school especially in in public school they're not always open to I guess that kind of and I'm sure back at, like during that time I'm sure it wasn't that long ago but um, it would have been kind of foreign for the students to see like another student that would start to adopt this new spiritual um, lifestyle yeah so I kind of had gone through that baptism of fire as a seven-year-old I was a weirdo I mean, I say that in a very positive sense, but, you know, sometimes looking back, you know, the things that I, you know, I kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, you were a bit of a lightning rod for, for the kind of uh, uh, acrimony that would, would sometimes mm -hmm. come your way from the other children. School was rough at, at that period. And I guess, you know, when, when I was in third grade, I, I proclaimed myself in front of the class to be the emperor of weird. 
which is which is really <laughs> I love it. Kind of, actually, if, later when I when I be, like learned astrology and I looked at the uh, you know, conjunction of Jupiter and Uranus in my first house, Jupiter is the emperor, Uranus is weird. It made a great deal of sense, and I would be publicly proclaiming this, you know, in a, in, you know, just making sure everybody knew. Uh, so so in a sense, yeah, I was certainly um, not immune to peer pressure and not immune to the feelings. Of, of like, oh, I better make sure I don't, you know, become that square pay that, that the crowd comes and hammers down. But at the other hand, I was a bit of a, like, I, I had a very strong kind of like, fuck you sense. Like, yeah. no, no, I'm going to do it. And then, and then after having an NDE, and I didn't know it was an NDE, but it had the same effects. After going through that, my, my level of don't give a fuck kind of increased. Uh, mm-hmm. Simply, I mean, not totally, but there was a space in me that was much stronger that was like, why should I be afraid of this when, when, you know, my mother just died? Why should yeah. I be afraid of this when I saw that I was one with the whole universe? You know, just, just like that experience was so intense and, and so raw and, and, and so cutting that a lot of things didn't quite carry the same kind of currency or weight that they had before. Okay. Can we, so. can we back up a bit? And I do want to talk about that. If you're open to it, I would love to hear about your NDE, your near-death experience, because my understanding is that's when you lost your mother, correct? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It all came, all came kind of in one package. Uh, so yeah. Oh yeah. My mother was, well, first of all, she was, I mean, I was close with all my family and, and you know, in different ways, but in, in, in some ways that, yeah, certainly was a mama's boy. You, you know, it's like, there was a very, in the sense that she was somebody who, you know, I could seem to really kind of actually understand how this psyche was, was, was ticking quite a bit. Uh, and you know, like maybe, um, in, in that respect, my, my mother and, and my sister were, were, you know, even though my dad is, was wonderful, a little bit uh, keener and, and understanding. So we were very close and, and, uh, it was the night before the, the car accident. I'd actually been playing baseball, like the first baseball game of the season. And I had been uh, hit by a pitch in the arm, which, which, uh, turned out to break my arm. And, and so I found out the night before that I, you know, my dad took me to the hospital and they found out I had a, had a fracture. And that was my big sort of thing that I was disappointed about. And like, oh my goodness, I broke my, I'm going to, you know, miss, miss, uh, you know, baseball season or something like that. And, and so I, before I went to bed, I was talking with my mom, as I often did, you know, having some conversation. And it suddenly just came through me. Uh, you know, a question came out of my mouth without me really thinking about it, which, which was not an infrequent experience, just having stuff kind of rush through uh, with a certain feeling. And it was, are you going to die soon? That was, that was my question to her. And I had never feared a minute about my mother's, you know, not living for quite some time. Uh, her health was, was pretty good. Uh, there weren't any warning signs like that. And I wasn't really anxious about that. Um, so it was interesting when it, when it came out of my mouth, it struck me as odd and it, and it's and it struck her as odd uh which which also which in turn also i took note of that her face just kind of went a little bit um like kind of white for you know a millisecond or a half second or something quick but something that i noticed and then she kind of course corrected and and said like what any you know parent would say uh, to their child was no no not not for some time you know of course i'll die someday but you know i'm going to be around for you for for as, as long as you need me for a while. And then I said, okay. And I, I was pretty, you know, pretty much, you know, comforted. Matter was 
over as far as I'm concerned for that night. And I went and had a good sleep. Uh, but, but when I woke up, I woke up like cartoon characters sometimes do, where you just, you know, kind of go 90 degrees up in the bed. I was like gasping, like I'd been running from, almost running into my body from somewhere. And, and the moment that I, that I sat up, my mother and father were, were actually walking right outside my bedroom door. And I, I often slept with my door open because <laughs> actually I, I felt more secure having a way out uh, than, than having it closed. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of poignant looking back because there they were. This was the last time I saw them together. They were going off on their daily morning walk. And the sun, the dawn sun, was sort of streaming in, from, in on them from a, from a win clerestory window above the stairway. Uh, but all I could say was, there's something I have to tell you, but I don't remember what it is. I was so frustrated that I couldn't remember this message, which I had apparently run into my body to deliver. And it was like, I was, they had to calm me down for about four or five minutes because I was so, and I was so upset that I couldn't remember this piece of important, whatever it was. And so they called me down and I just, you know, they went off and I went off to school and had a good you know, sort of second to last day of the school year. This is right before summer break. Uh, always once my favorite time of school was when it was just about over, uh, you, you know, and, you know, just came home after that, you know, sat down, was watching a part of a movie with my mother. And then we went to take my sister to uh, her new workplace and which was kind of at the edge of town and off of a highway, sort of one of those divided highways. And as we pulled out, uh, you know, it, would, it was pretty much impossible to see the car that hit us coming because it was sort of hidden behind another car or two, which were going the speed limit and we would easily clear. But this one must have just decided to like pedal to the metal it. And um, boom, I was uh, turning my head to say something to my mother and, and, you know, something about not wanting to put in the Luther Vandross tape because uh, I'd heard enough Luther Vandross for, for a lifetime at that point. And, you know, sort of turned my head to the left and there was a car. And a big car was like right outside my mom's door. And I don't, they, they didn't even start like screeching on those brakes until it was just about hitting us. So it's like they, yeah, that driver didn't really know what was going on. And, um, you know, the, I didn't have time to panic. I mean, maybe I could have panicked, uh, but whatever happened next really didn't feel like much of a choice on my part. It felt like something vaster sort of taking over, something biological taking over uh, both of those. And I had one time for one thought, which was shit. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. And then, and then after shit, you know, I, I calmed. I calmed down so much. I, I, the next thought I registered was I really thought this... You know, I really thought this life was going to go more than 13 years because I was pretty much settled that this was the end of, of this life. And, um, and then after I had that thought, I, I went into, uh, you know, without, this was before getting hit, before the impact, I went through the life review that a lot of people do in the NDE, and just, uh, which was interesting because I was always fascinated by those accounts uh, that I'd heard. And I thought, how is that possible? You know, to see your whole life in, you know, in a split second in greater detail than you could remember it while you're uh, awake. And there it was. And in this case, it wasn't me just passively watching um, some sort of video, but there was also this sense of me being guided by this vast, completely objective, all-seeing aspect of consciousness um, that I had known throughout life, but often kind of turned away from because it would, you know, make my egoic plan seemed like really stupid. I get uncomfortable about, 
you know, everything being seen, you know. Uh, but here I was absolutely loving it. And I found myself merging with this, with this, you know, vast consciousness the, the more we went back through my life. And what, what was interesting is, you know, we saw the whole thing and it was, you know, kind of seeing not just what was happening in me, but in the people around me. Uh, we would we would look at the all the choices that I made where I was um, afraid or kind of um, wearing a mask of pretense or lying for some reason to protect my ass or something like that and we kind of looked at them and, and we saw I saw exactly what they were and we, and then they were forgiven in this really wonderful profound way and and it was so very palpable because each time something was forgiven it felt as if some weight that I'd been carrying it was being taken off and it felt like basically this this um, skin was being peeled off and this this skin that I had no idea I was wearing that that just had the weight of the world on it and, and by the end of the life review it was like no more skin <laughs> of that and I was you know uh, as, as this process went on it was just the sense of oh my god of course you know I've the my whole life has really been made out of love and I just didn't see it you know, of course it was the whole time. All the people who picked on me and who I, you know, really didn't like that much. It's like, oh, wow, oh my God, it was, it was just love. They're, they're made out of love. I was made out of love. Everything that was happening, even the, the horrible stuff that was just this, this, this same thing playing all the parts. Uh, and I remembered that I knew it in childhood. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah I guess I did know it. And then I left it behind, you know, because I wanted to sort of fit in and, you know, be a, like everybody else have this, you know, kind of ego and personality. And it seemed like a good idea at about age six or seven to have one of those. And then it turned into a bad idea uh, quickly thereafter. Uh, so, and that was so, that was wonderful. By the end of it, I was looking at my, you know, I had a very limited view physically in my world of what I was looking at. There's the car, there's my mother's shoulder, there's the sky in the distance. But I saw everything it was like, oh my God, right now this is, it was in, in some ways the, the, the freest I'd ever felt in my life was that moment and then boom, impact. And so then I came out of the, you know, I was knocked out, concussed. Uh, I remember having my head slam into the, uh, uh, the window beside me, but the window didn't break and I didn't have bruising on my head, which was odd. Uh, I, I woke up with the, the dinging from the seatbelt um, car thing on and my mother uh, was, was really struggling um, to stay alive. And the uh, EMTs were cutting the car open on both sides to, to remove our doors. And, you know, I just remember being, having these people kind of pull me out and make sure that my, to hold my spine in a certain way. And they were asking me questions and you know, checking my eyes with, with, a, with, a, uh, with whatever. And I couldn't remember most of their questions. The only thing I knew was that that's my mom over there. I didn't know my name or anything um, or my mother's name. And they put us in the ambulance and were driving us away. And, and then I, I was sort of at the top of the ambulance at the same time looking down at my body at the same time that I was in my body looking up at the, at the ceiling, which was interesting uh, to me. I, uh, but the main thing that happened in the ambulance was my mother um, called my name out twice and, and I answered twice, um, I'm okay, mom. And the first one, I don't think she registered, but the second one, I know she registered um, that, that I was okay. And immediately after I told her that I was okay, um, I felt her breathing change from sort of this struggled, labored um, breath to a very even 
sort of calm. And I, and at that moment, I also felt her, her kind of leave our space because as she was also talking to me, I felt like her voice was, uh, I suppose, issuing from, from a shared consciousness or issuing from a shared, shared sort of space. Uh, for lack of a better term. She felt like a distinct soul, but we felt also in a certain sense that we were sharing some kind of field with each other uh, at the top of the ambulance. And, and so I didn't register, you know, my mind, I wasn't thinking rationally. This, the frontal lobe stuff wasn't the, the main flavor of consciousness. So I didn't, you know, think like, oh, she's going, she's, that means she's dying and she's never going to come back. That it just didn't register. And, uh, that we got into the hospital and, uh, you know, it wasn't long after that my dad, you know, my sister was standing next to me. I was on a gurney, and I guess they figured I was probably, I, would, I was okay, but they were keeping me strapped down, my head strapped down just in case, I suppose. And then my dad came out and told my sister and I that your mother's gone. And that was just like, you know, the hardest blow I'd ever uh, received in, in life. And it was, you know, pretty much like a blur of tears and, and um, sadness and grief and shock. Um, as we were sort of ushered out of the hospital and, and uh, brought back to our house by, by my dad's best friend. And, um, you know, that kind of, that space of shock, you know, and disbelief, uh, you know, continued obviously for a while. But um, what was followed that was that consciousness that I was sort of introduced to in right before impact stayed around. And um, at first I thought it was an aspect of shock because it made sense for and some of those experiences sounded similar, but then, uh, then I started to think it was something else than than just shock. After, after I started to to notice this, that I wasn't afraid of anything, that um, that there was such a lightness in my being, and and that there was often this vast joy that was you know coming out from somewhere deep inside, even if I was crying on you know on the surface, and uh, so. I didn't know what I was experiencing, but something something was happening, uh, so I just kind of you know went with it over the next summer. And uh, when I went back to school, you know, uh, in, in August, uh, you know, it was still there, but then I kind of shifted out of it, or or you know, I'd, I'd been given a preview, and then I kind of tried to fit in again, tried to be who I was before. I thought that's what I was supposed to do, is is to be whoever I thought Thomas Ward Howell was, and you know there. And, and it just took me a little while to, you know, maybe a year, two, three years. Uh, it took me a while to, to realize that whatever happened had just completely changed things and, I, and that it was suffering for me to try to fight, you know, the, the, the new song that was trying to be played through me. And, and so that was, you know, that was part of what was um, the fear of meditation. <laughs> Not that it was some, like, dark, scary thing <laughs> or anything like that. It's just I knew that... If, if I opened up to this song that was trying to play through me, which I sometimes I call the crazy monk, for lack of a better word, <laughs> oh man, there's a crazy monk down in the basement. If I if I open that door and let the crazy monk out, shit's gonna, there's, there's, gonna, <laughs> there's no controlling things. The family's gonna think I'm crazy. You know, in that way I was a little conscious of, mainly because I thought, of, oh God, if I'm disowned by my family at, at 18, you know, how the hell am I gonna survive? You know, it's kind of like, and so for me, the choice to, to go and, and be a monk, I had to kind of account for like, is this worth dying of starvation or disease in like a gutter in Seattle with a wet blanket on top of me? And I did come to the answer that, yes, in fact, it is worth that. For me, it was, it's like, you know, yes, it is. Okay. 
and, 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 and until I could get to that point, it was as if I, uh, there was some break on me because, because that's what the crazy monk, uh, opening that door meant. It meant that this might be a very short candle you know, this lifetime that burns brightly and, you know, potentially d doesn't, you know, live on that long. So I talked a lot right there. <laughs> Hope that works. No, that was great. It was so interesting because you would start to talk about something and then a question would arise and it was like you would then answer the question. <laughs> oh, good. We're doing this. We're doing this like uh, telepathically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. efficient. <laughs> I do have to yeah. ask, though, most people when they lose, you know, someone very close to them, they go through um what is it? The seven stages of grief and oh, yeah. um, just, I guess like the typical, uh, like I've seen it in, in my life, not only in myself, but in family members, when they lose someone, they just seem to go into this really dark place, like really bad depression, or they cut themselves off mm -hmm. from society. Do you feel like you had a similar experience with that? Or did you, because you had, I guess that, um, more like spiritual connection with your mother before she passed, um, that it was different. Oh, I mean, I mean, I, I wish I had them in my mind, uh, tattooed Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief because, uh, you know, my mother had that literature around the house, um, because she was a, a marriage and family counselor and studied a lot of different psychology and, and like a textbook, I went, you know, through the, those stages of grief and in some ways like, I wish that people would have been a little bit re really pushed the gas pedal on. Like you could be grieving in a certain sense for a very, very long time. And some of the counselors were like that, but it's like, I felt like I was getting a bit mixed messages in a certain sense from the society I was in. It's like, <laughs> that's another, that's another con uh, conversation, how we, how we process grief, but yeah, mm -hmm. um, definitely in short. And then there were things that I still, I think to this day in a certain sense can, can feel the very human, uh, human experiences of grief, but you're right that it was, I think, modified to a certain degree because I, I think it actually made it go more smoothly, uh, in the sense of like, I didn't resist a lot of things as much as I think I probably would have had I not had this sense of like, what, what the fuck is this giant infinite window that's opened up behind my body and, and is so comfortable and, 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 you know, it's like, does it has me not worrying about things that, that definitely made the human experiences be able to be processed. Uh, and so I often felt like my emotional life felt like this raging waterfall, you know, just like, whoa. And, but, and yet at the same, I was letting it flow because I had this kind of dry cave, comfortable cave behind the waterfall. That's what it felt like on many days. I like sometimes I remember like one time I, I didn't break too much stuff, which is good. But when I was in the anger phase, yeah, I was punching that door of my garage. I'd go out to the garage where nobody could hear me, and I was screaming, and I was punching, and I was uh, swearing, and and it's you know just very angry, and you know that that's so. And at the same time, as as I was punching, there was this deep, vast quiet that was there at the same time. So it was interesting to have these kind of have this whole spectrum from one to the other uh, being experienced. And since then, have you ever had any, if you don't mind sharing, any um, connections or communications with your mother? Not as much as I would want for all the 
damned ghosts I saw in my life. <laughs> had to go to the other side. I'm like, can we have, I was sometimes thinking, can we have a trade here? Could I have some more mob time and less, I don't know, people who died in the 1940s time you know, coming to the house. Um, but there were a few, there have been a few poignant times that, that um, uh, one of the most um, poignant times came in my meditation teacher training. I was about uh, three months into a five-month program where you're where you basically like meditating for 12 to 16 hours a day. And and I was like, you know, bliss bombed out in th- at, by three months for sure. And I remember I walked to the bathroom. I, I went in. I turned the lights on. Um, I, I, I looked in the looking in the mirror. It was it wasn't just because there's a biological similarity between um, faces, between family members, but I saw my mother's soul. And I felt my mother's soul, a palpable sense of being almost like being hugged, uh, like I was when I was a little child. And that just poured through me. And, and you know, looking in and just kind of seeing her eyes in a, in a not at all creepy or scary sort of way, like you think in horror movies with mirrors, but in a completely like, oh my God, you know, it's like there, there was, so there was this experience of, oh, you know, at a certain level, we've not been separated, even and we've been connected in a much more profound way than, than you know, some kind of um, you know mother-son um, biological uh, orientation, something deeper and more primary than a than the physical connection, and and so that was you know that was impacting. And later, you know, it must have been about twelve years later, um, I was walking up uh, Giotto's bell tower in Florence, Italy. And um, this was meaningful because this, uh, my mother used to tell me a lot when I was a kid, like when you graduate high school, um, I'm, we're gonna go to, to Europe together. And we're gonna, uh, cause one of, um, for her, one of the most impactful parts of her life, I think maybe one of the parts of her life where she felt the most joy and freedom and many other things was when she went as a, as a student in the early 1970s and um, you know, hung out in Amsterdam and, and the UK and, and Florence, and she told me all these stories about Florence. So as I was walking up that that bell tower, I realized this is a fairly narrow stairway, and a lot of these, I just realized that a lot, a lot of these steps um, were the very ones my mother walked up, and and just having that very kind of um, thought pop through sort of like opened up this much different space, and I, I felt um, you know my mother was walking with me. Up, up those stairs as well. That same, again, that same kind of like, not just an emotion, but a, almost a sense of her presence. The felt sense of her presence was very thick in, in, that, in that space. So that, that's basically um, what I've gotten. It's, it's not so dissimilar from when I went to this Meet Your Spirit Guys workshop. I was like 14. I went to the metaphysical bookstore and, and I was like, you know, they had us sitting in the chairs and I was like, all right, I did what they told me to do to meet my spirit guys. I went up, found myself going up this tube of tube of light above my head and I met these beings it's like they were having a conversation like I interrupted I was like hey you know it's, uh, hey spirit guys <laughs> you know basically it's like oh hey good job you know hey hey yeah you that it's like, it's like so you're gonna like talk to me now and like tell me what to do and stuff like that you know and and they were like no you're good so you know just just go back down to your body you know everything that you need to know you, you work it out with what you've got you know, it's like, okay. So I've gotten a lot of, I've, I've often felt like I got a lot of like, work it out with what you got, you know, cause it's, cause it's enough. 
So, so it, it's kind of been similar to that. Uh, and then I suppose like a year ago she showed up, which was interesting. Oh, and uh, like last year, me. like 2021. Yeah, maybe? last last year. Uh, was 2021. I think it was 2021. Yeah, early, uh, early 20 like spring. Was you know the, the I was driving home from the grocery store, and this is my, my her mother, my grandmother, um, who I was I was fairly close to, um, passed away uh, at the end of 2018, and you know I hadn't had any contact. Well, I had had some contact with uh, grandma post post death, but I was just driving home from the grocery store uh, on our country road and something possessed me to look kind of behind me. Um, I don't really know what. Uh, and so I, I looked behind me to the corner and sitting in the back seat of the car was uh, my, my grandmother and my mother. <laughs> it's like sitting together with, with like huge smiles. Uh, and, and, and it's like, I could tell, oh, and, and they didn't look exactly like they did much. They looked almost like, um, an, like some sort of platonic ideal, non-stressed version of what could come through their physical form. And they were both bathed in this intense golden sort of light. And, and they were solid. I, I couldn't see through them, like, which is sometimes something I've seen through spirits a lot. I couldn't see through them. They were, I couldn't see the seat behind them or whatever. And I was looking back and kind of probably driving irresponsible, but like nobody drives on that road. So, you know, I was spared an accident or something. But for like two seconds, I was like, okay, you know, so, so could, like, I could like soak this moment in and, you know, for as long as it lasts. And then all of it, and so they smiled at me. And, and then all of a sudden, boom, there was, there was a pop, a popping sound in the car. And they were gone, like, like, a pop, like, like that. And then I, and then I stopped the car. You know, because I thought, okay, no car accidents, and then just kind of like, all right, okay, and, and kept driving. So that was no no context, no message. I think the message was really delivered in, in how their presence was, and, and and the happiness that I that I saw beaming out of them, and the unfettered joy. And this was kind of like, all right, you two are you two are good, and uh, and I think they were saying you're good. You know, we've, we've you know keep doing whatever the hell it is that you're doing sort of sort of thing so that that's the totality of that wow that's really beautiful what a beautiful thing to have especially during this time in history where things just feel kind of dark and hopeless in the world yeah 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 it's 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 weird like i can i can embrace both like there's there's like okay <laughs> um, fascism crumbling of you know potentially wanted to rise crumbling of, of various systems that have not been that great. Right. <laughs> and then on the other hand, I've got, I've got the joyous spirits of my mother and grandmother showing up for three seconds in the backseat of my car, completely blissed out in whatever the hell plane they're in. And, and mm-hmm. it's like, all right, you know, it is a lot of, you know, and, and lots of stuff in between. Wow. A lot of stuff can, can live side by side in a weird way. Huh? Yeah. Now, you also mentioned that you're a monk. Can you talk a little bit about that? What led you into becoming a monk? And was that like affiliated with a certain type of organized religion or or what was that like? God, yeah. Well, that well, that was like, yeah, when I, when I would use, I never wanted to be such a thing when I was a kid. That's first off. I wasn't <laughs> raised in a religion. And I often thought the kids who were, you know, like in, in religious education programs in my school were like being brainwashed by they're probably also brainwashed and terrible parents you know <laughs> i was actually raised our household is a little bit atheistic at least, at least um it was more agnostic free th- you know agnostic which was good i was glad to be encouraged to be a free thinker and i was like 
you know, I was I was never uh, deterred from being interested in whatever as long as I also learned critical thinking, which which I really appreciate. And I think my dad and mother were actually pretty good teachers of 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 you know how to sort of critically assess things at the same time being have a very open mind. And I was lucky to have an aunt who's a who I had a lot of exposure to as a kid who was a scientist and fast had fascinating conversations with her because she's just like my parents very brilliant and 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 so yeah religion wasn't wasn't <laughs> on the menu but so that made it weird when I was like an early teen after the NDE where it's like I want to be a monk what, what the <laughs> f- <laughs> and, and 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 uh you know it's like okay and I had been before that fascinated by say Tibetan Buddhists when I would see pictures of them when I would hear their baritone chanting you know, it's like my heart would go on fire, and I didn't quite know why. And you know, I, and this was before the car accident. So were there were precedents before the car accident, but they just weren't the dominant tone. After it became the dominant tone, and and so I just kept kind of going with it. Okay, all right. And I, I remember one time I walked into a uh, the metaphysical bookstore. Like this, this made a big difference. I I never wanted to go into a metaphysical bookstore in my life because. I thought, oh, it's just some place to buy wind chimes and incense where people go who, you know, kind of have a weird glazed look in their eyes and, you know, kind of like are fooling themselves in some way, like where middle-aged people having midlife crises go to, to you know, try to pull together the shambles of their existence. Uh, <laughs> so, so but, but my sister wanted to go in and I was a very dutiful younger brother. Like I would go where my sister wanted to go. You know, and I would tough it out if it's in a place that, you know, tested my patience because she's my big sister. And and so I, I went into the bookstore with her. It's named Heart and Soul. And I went into the back room uh, because they had books and I always like looking at, at books. And I went there and I just picked up a book at random and, and opened it at random, you know. And then it started talking about experiences uh, that were so similar to, to what I'd been going through um, after the car accident. And, and and so and it was a book on Tibetan yogis, uh, or I should say Himalayan yogis. It was cover, covering both Hindu and, and um, Tibetan practitioners and styles. But it was you know talking about samadhi. It was it was talking about uh, witnessing consciousness. It was talking about people who had this peace that was there even if they were going through hell, and and, a, and then a bunch of other fancier things, which of course I wasn't experiencing. You know, like I never melted a frozen blanket around my body. <laughs> Another chapter, but those other ones. I was caught and I was like, Oh my God. So maybe it wasn't shock, you know, and which I was suspecting. And because before that I was trying to get back to that place and I was like jumping out of moving vehicles. And I thought like, that's the key to freedom. Get yourself as close to death as possible. And that must unlock some, some mechanism that's very difficult for a human being to unlock. I thought, yeah, let's get close to death or let's scare ourselves. And, you know, I was running out of ways to scare myself safely. Because I also didn't want to, like, you know, actually die. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to act. So, so they were presenting, like, oh, you could take up meditation. You know, I was like, oh, okay. And this is where the monk thing came in. Because I was like, all right. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a Jedi Knight. That must have been my, my way of translating a, um, a trope or a type of life, which is no longer really much supported in our society. Because I would look at... Um, uh, religionists and I thought what a bunch of joyless people fooling themselves I didn't have any <laughs> access to like top I didn't have access to Thomas Merton at the time say or or Richard Rohr these are you know the, the Christians in my town did not look like they were getting much out of what they were doing uh, so it was it wasn't inspiring me and I, the internet really wasn't you know that great back in the in the mid to late 90s you couldn't 
go around and find things easily. Um, it's just my library, you know, the books that there I had access to. So uh, this was great. I, I stayed the next year in that metaphysical bookshop. I kind of had a tacit, we didn't make an actual uh, proper deal, but the tacit deal was basically the owner would let me read as many books as I wanted without buying them as long as I bought something. Uh, it was about every month and a half. So I was into amulets, and, and so I would you know, get some money together, and I would buy like a like an Eye of Horus amulet and a you know, Celtic cross, and, and that, was, that was what I considered my rent and reading uh, payment. And so, so that, um, you know, eventually I was searching around and for a while I thought I, I wanted to be like a musician or an actor. I was trying to kind of find a middle ground between, you know, I was trying to find a place in the world and try to find a middle ground between what I thought I wanted to be before, which is like a politician, lawyer type, which I no longer really wanted to be. It wasn't in my heart anymore. I was like, well, I, I couldn't be a monk because I'm just some like, you know, I don't know, I'm intelligent, but I'm kind of like a fairly average spiritually average white dude from Wisconsin. And I was like, I, I don't think I can go to the Himalayas and, you know, <laughs> maybe attain. Who am I to think that? So I was like, well, what's in between? Kind of, I guess an artist is sort of in between a mystic and a politician in my mind. And so, okay, I'll, I'll be a, like a, try to be a musician and an actor because at least doing that job, I can sort of contact spiritual states and, and um, you know, work on um, deepening emotionally and, and healing those sorts of things. And so for a while, that was the track in my head. And, and then it was, I, I went to go see my sister uh, at her university town in Massachusetts. And uh, it was, we had a great time on the trip out there. And we were walking around, and I don't know, it was Amherst and Northampton. We, we spent time in both of those places. I think it was Northampton, Massachusetts. And we were walking, we saw this beautiful sort of Victorian house like up on a little rise. And there was a big sign that said Gypsy Palm Reader. I think the readings were like five or ten dollars per person. It was like price is right, you know. So we decided, <laughs> as a brother and sister, go have some fun, get our palms read, hopefully by a proper gypsy. And, and we walked in, and indeed the lady had the right costume, and she's kind of old, and and she had a son, who who took the money and kind of you know looked a little tough in case you know problematic people came in, and <laughs> and so. I was resolute that I would not give her any food for a cold reading because I'd been a student of parapsychology for a while at this point. And so I like, I, you know, I, I try to put on my best, even neutral face of, this is not someone who wants to be an actor or a musician. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I try to summon the face of an accountant, you know, or something like that, you know. And, and I, you know, I, I put my hand uh, out to her and, and, and she, the first thing she told me was, you're absolutely, kind of a Ukrainian accent, so I'm sorry, it's bad. You're absolutely not going to be actor or musician. <laughs> and I was like, right. you know, first I was thinking like, keep the neutral face because she could be, most people of my age, she probably thinks want to be actors or musicians. And so it's like, I, I, I keep the neutral face. I was like, yeah, you don't think so? That's like, she's, no, no, no matter how hard you try, it is not for you. It is, it is not happening. And, and at this point, I said, well, I'm just going to be a normal person. I'm going to tell her what I want to do because I was like, really? I was, uh, so I said, well, you know, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one because I'm absolutely going to do one or both of those things. And, you know, it's like, you'll see, I've got drive. I'm going to make it happen is, is sort of what I told her in a very polite sort of way. But then I was like, I wanted to get my money out of this reading or my sister's money out of this reading because I wasn't paying. And, uh, and I was like, all right, what do you think I'm going to do then? 
and and she said and then when i asked her that i think she she went she looked like you know emma thompson in the harry potter films when she you know as it happened in an actual prophecy moment and something was there and it was a power it, that kind of came through her voice she said you're going to travel the world teaching the true mystical teachings of christ <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> and then i i like i saw like a i saw like a cross like an orthodox sort of thing orthodox christian kind of iconic thing on her wall that oh she's a christian she's playing a mystic gypsy <laughs> she's just trying to get people to be missionaries um you know and so so, uh, so that kind of got my thing like well okay i don't think that's gonna happen you know like uh, that's absolutely not gonna happen i have no interest in and uh, organized religion or anything of, of, of that sort. And um, six, six years later, I was on a plane to go teach a meditation course um, in Tennessee. And I had I read the little one of the bylines on the back um, of uh, a book that was associated with my meditation practice many times before, but never connected with the gypsy lady. And, and it said, um, you know, now, you know, in time for the second millennium, the true mystical teachings of Christ. <laughs> I oh, just wow. started laughing when I read that because I finally remembered that what she told me because uh, I just, it wasn't memorable. I thought, yeah, this lady's just, you know, just trying to get me to do something. And, uh, and I was like, oh my God, you, you know, so in that moment, I tried to send like a, I tried to send a message telepathically to her wherever, whatever plane of existence she was on. It's like, hey lady, you were right, you know, um, you got me. I, I'm eating crow. You know, I was wrong. You know, so so you know that, there was something in there. You know, there's something stirring. I, I remember uh, one of the most impactful films that I watched, and a lot of films would would you know you know hit the button for me, was the old 1971 or 70 or 72 Franco Zeffirelli film Brother Son Sister Moon, the movie about the life of Saint Francis, and um, just. I don't know, that film blew me away. Uh, especially the scene where he um, takes off all his clothes in the town square, um, gives them to his father, and gives himself to the, you know, to the, to the spiritual life. And he walks out of town naked, you know, into an un uncertain future. Beautifully shot by Zeffirelli, you know, because, you know, which shots would be most effective. But that, that, I was kind of sitting in a place where I was like, you know, should I, should I not? And, and that did it. That, that just did it, that touched me in a certain way. I was like, yeah, that's what I got to do. Of course, he's, here he's quoting like St. Francis, like too, I don't know, which, I forget which part of Matthew it was, but the, the, the lilies of the field and the bird in the sky um, passage, which which of all the passages in the New Testament, or, you know, whatever you call that document, of all the passages, that that one probably has always been the one that touched, has touched me the most. Um, you know, because I'd had enough experience of, not having to um, live a life through the filter of, of sort of the uh, often neurotic uh, conditioned separate biographical self. And whenever I get up, find myself out of that cage, of course, those were the most beautiful, uh, worthwhile, joyous, free moments of my life. And those were really what I was living for. And, and, and here it's like, yeah, that's, I guess I was on an edge. I was like, okay, that's what I have to dedicate this, this body mind. If, if, if we have purposes in life, if it's not just random or arbitrary or make it up as you go, but if there, if we really do have an essence and that essence really does have like a song and a direction that it wants to live out, 
that's it for me. That's my song, just like just like it was for Francis. So so then that that did it, and uh, it wasn't long after that that I ended up learning um, the the ascension practice. I'd been doing a lot of different meditations, which were helping in some ways, maybe hindering in other ways, because I was damned hard on myself. I, I was trying to be an ascetic. I thought that's what I had to do, you know. And, and I was doing all these concentration practice and taking cold showers at three in the morning every day, and like medit, you know, just like hard ass and it was Gandhi thin basically because I often did a lot of fast and even when I wasn't fasting wasn't eating all that much and I would running up hills with rocks in my backpack uh it was just wild and um you know after, not long after I was sort of you know praying to be shown well what's my path because I don't think all this stuff and I don't think that uh, the crazy folks at that monastery in Colorado who you know uh, didn't want me to become because they found out my sun sign was in Scorpio. <laughs> I don't think they're the ones for me. <laughs> that was a hilarious conversation, actually. <laughs> well, what's your sun sign? Scorpio. And it sounded like there was this deathly silence on the other end. Uh, and then I was having to recover. It's like, yeah, yeah, but my, my moon's in Virgo. And uh, I got Jupiter in Sagittarius. And it's like, and then, the, then I was right. The person, okay, that's okay. We can work with that. <laughs> that was after that I knew, okay, this, this joint is definitely not for me. You know, so I was trying to find the next joint that I was going to go to. And I looked up, I, I, I got pamphlets from these people in Crestone, Colorado, Zen, Zen Monastery, a Carmelite monastery that was there, uh, the Kriya Yoga folks in Nevada City. Um, but none of them felt quite right. Uh, I read Autobiography of a Yogi by Yogananda at the same time that I that this brother, son, sister moon came and they, they both were priming me. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do Kriya Yoga. This Yogananda guy, he seems great. You know, like, wow, you know, um, and, and it just wasn't, that wasn't where I was going. So I was um, very um, glad that I, I met um, uh, a man um, who would turn out to be uh, my, my first brother-in-law. Um, and, you know, he did this practice and couldn't really tell me much about it, but we meditated together and I could see like, oh, my God, he's got this glow about him. You know, when he's sitting across me, it's like, okay, what, I don't know what he's doing, but whatever he's doing, I think it's working for him. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be invited to a class and actually with my sister, uh, was, we did a lot of things together. I got to, with my big sister, learn it in the same weekend as, as mutual beginners, which was great. And, uh, you know, you know no, really not much looking back from there. I, I was, you know, hooked into where I was supposed to go and something in my heart kind of knew it. So that's, that's where we are today. And now you live in Portugal with your wife, Luna. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I can't believe I got married. I didn't think I'd ever get married. Cause <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. How, now what's the story yeah. between you and Luna meeting? How did that come about? Oh yeah, that was, that was wild. Um, I was, you know, kind of, I, I found myself years later after being a monk kind of leaving the, the center and kind of going into university. And I was in this, uh, Portland State University, I thought I'll kind of get in somewhere and kind of learn how to be a normal person who goes to school again, and then maybe go to a different university. But I was, you know, pretty much sunk into Portland State, um, you know, of, of choosing that first. And so for years, I would, I would be asking myself, what the hell am I doing in Portland, uh, you know, for a while. And, and then I, I came to my Saturn return. And I was, uh, I remember like waking up, not being able to breathe, because uh, I was really suffering. Uh, there in university and whatever a lot of it's of course self-imposed and i was walking out of my body 
you know, and going to this door with the light on, I knew that was, and this voice said, like, you could die right now, and it's cool, you'll be fine. You know, it's, you've, you've done what you needed to do in this life, it'll be great, no problem. Uh, or you could go back, get in your body again, get back on, on, the, on the horse. And it's like, I was like, okay, I'll get back on the horse. And then as soon as I did that, like, it must have been um, one, two weeks later after that, um, there's Luna. And um, I just knew uh, from, from looking at her. I was resistant, too, because I was like, man, I'm just getting my groove back. I'm back in the old monk magic space. And now you're going to try to throw me into a relationship? You know, like, can't you give me a little bit of time to sort of, like, just kind of ease in? I, I, you know, it, it's, it's so, but, but there, there, there she was. And funnily enough, um, I didn't know at the time because she had a different haircut when I met her. But uh, two months before, I had, you know, like, we had a mutual friend on Facebook who posted some pictures. And I was just, you know, scrolling one day in the summer. And, and then I saw this person that I'd never met in my friend's picture. And I was completely fascinated. Like I, I was, I'm not like a, I've never been with like a social media stalker. That's not really, you know, something that I was prone to do. I'm not saying that it's bad to do. It's just not my, <laughs> my bag necessarily. But I found myself like having this crazy emotional experience. And, and like I, I saw pictures from her before because she just seemed so familiar. It's deeply familiar at, at the soul level. I was crying. And I was like, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. This, what a soul. You know, and then I saw that she had, like, uh, went with a boyfriend to Paris in 2010, and, you know, two years before, and I was kind of like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, I wish, I wish that would have been me in Paris. Because, actually, in 2010, I wanted to go on this vacation to Paris, but I could never afford something like that. I had to stay, stay in Portland and work in the summers as, as much as possible. So such trips were kind of off the, uh, you know, possibilities list for me. And so, you know, it's like I was crying and then, and then I was like, okay, you know, all right, that was weird. I was crying at looking through somebody's Facebook pictures um, and, and he left it at that. And so it wasn't until after we, after meeting her and months later, exchanging information on Facebook, it was like, oh, okay, that's the same person. Uh, weird, you know, and so we kind of went, went from there, basically. I was a grump too. Because uh, I was, I was having to get over, um, you know, all the sort of self-imposed dark night of the soul suffering that I that I'd gone through the past four years, and and kind of having to have the the uh, some hard experience of having to leave my old monastic organization. Uh, so you know, she was uh, an angel to put up with my grumpiness and, <laughs> and to not be. <laughs> I, I did give her a very long laundry list of what. And I said, this is probably not going to be exhaustive because one never knows all of one's bad qualities. But here's the list of things that you might want to know about before thinking about, you know, doing any long-term thing with me as a person. <laughs> and I just tried to make it as bad as, as possible. Just And if you can accept that, then we're probably going to be okay. You, you know, and, uh, not saying I want to stay in that my whole life, but let's be real. I'm going to be a realist here. You know, we, <laughs> hopefully we evolve here. But, you know, if I don't, this is what it's like. <laughs> And what initially led you to go to Portugal? Oh God, the, the winds of destiny. I think uh, they, they, I don't. You know, we were um, at the time it was 2019. That's how long we've been in Portugal. Late 2019, she was um, finishing up a job in Japan. Um, I was lucky; I could spend six or seven months in in Japan with her. Um, 
before it's like, oh, I got to get back to the States because I can't make money here in Japan like I can in Portland. So then I was back in Portland. She was in Japan, you know, doing things. It was just, you know, it was coming to the end of her contract. And I was also feeling important. Like, I feel like I'm kind of having a farewell tour of the city right now. So it's just going around and enjoying people and the things that, that were there. And because there's this sense like I, I'm supposed to go somewhere. And, and she was like, I think it's time to go to Europe. I said, yeah, you know, let's go to, let's go to Europe. You know, let's, it was just an intuitive kind of thing. The opportunity was there and she's Portuguese as well. So, you know, thinking the practical terms, um, you know, that's where we can live legally here and until my, all my paperwork gets, gets sorted. So, you know, we, we first started in the UK and then we made our way through other European countries and having meditation courses and landed in Portugal. Uh, funnily, like six years before when we were living in Canada, I, I remembered this dream I had. And I, once I told it to her, it's like, I had this dream and we were living in, we'll, we'll be living in rural Portugal. And like, neither of us wanted to live in rural Portugal at the time. And, and it was like, and we were like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and six years later, we're living in rural Portugal because we were priced out of Lisbon and priced out of the fancy uh, cities around there because Airbnb has just put everything up. So here we are in a kind of a um, two-story farmhouse on, on sort of a permaculture property. Wow, it sounds beautiful, though. But I feel like that's kind of a dream for a lot of people. Both, yes. It, it, it is a dream and it is beautiful. <laughs> and, and yeah, it, it's uh, for sure. Uh, lucky, I'd, I'd always myself wanted to have more space because I, I worked as a um, uh, sort of a permaculture informed gardener and landscaper for many years. And, um, you know, always renting, but not with a lot of space to really do what I want to do. And, you know, you can't really push your own desires on your clients. You kind of have to, you know, that's not good. You have to do what they want and so, you know, support that. But here, you know, it's great because it's like, we live on a property of a man who is essentially a permaculturalist. And, and so he's very happy that we're putting in, you know, vegetable beds and using permaculture methods to, uh, uh, to grow them and experimenting. And it's a very supporting environment for that. So this is really our, our practice for the new world. That's what I think of it, the, uh, the new world that maybe uh, is, is trying to form af after this one, a world I think of lots of small permaculture holdings and food forests and, and um, you know, much more local food knowledge and, and um, you know, lo local food systems. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky to be here. I'm always grateful that she found this place on the internet like a needle in a haystack. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that is something I want to touch on before we get wrapped up today. I am curious to hear your perspective on moving from the United States to Portugal because you and I chatted briefly the other day because you read birth charts and, and you did what am I or you read my birth chart the other day. But we were talking about that leaving the United States, you can feel the collective pain body here versus <sighs> you know, going across the border. Oh, I want to talk God. about that for a moment. <laughs> I want to talk about that for a moment. And I also am really interested to hear about your perspective as to where the world is going right now, because we're, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. All of these systems are crumbling. Where do you see the world going here in the next few years? So that's two questions. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, yeah, first on the, on the pain body, that's been something of, yeah, as we talked about the other day, I'll, I'll just briefly um, uh, recapitulate it here. Uh, I've been blessed in my life to have you know, also spent a year living in Vancouver, BC. 
And, you know, in, as part of, you know, living in Vancouver, BC, there was lots of crossings of the border without fail. Um, I also used to live in uh, Michigan, uh, sort of helping to run a meditation center. I'd, I'd, we'd drive all the way over to Detroit and get on that bridge to Windsor, Ontario. There, too, at all these border crossings, every time I go into Canada, I'd feel about 50 pounds lighter. Uh, almost, you know, right at that imaginary, you know, supposedly arbitrary political line, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, you know, oh my God. And I'd try to, t I'd try to tell my Canadians, you just do not know. You do not know. Stop complaining. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't know, you don't know trouble. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Every time we come in, it would be um, like, like getting sort of a slap in the face when I, when I returned from Japan. Um, you know, spending seven months living in Japan, where, you know, even as a foreigner, I was able to pay 100 US bucks a month for, you know, com total comprehensive health care. Uh, and wonderful health care, you know, very allopathic, but, you know, at least you're getting all the allopathic that you, you really need or want. But um, coming back from Japan into San Francisco airport, right, by port of entry, it felt like I was hit in the stomach with a with a medicine ball. Uh, it was the, just the emotions. Uh, in the United States, we are artificially living in a in a, in a place where our adrenals are getting. We, we just don't even know it. This this kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, which while it serves some kind of some purpose in a certain way, I mean, it's, I'm not saying to be become lazy and not be ambitious that these aren't. Um, good things, but I, I think as a country, we have to sort of wake up to the fact that, um, you know, that the structure that you live in uh, <laughs> can sometimes put a cap on just how far ambition, that personal individual initiative and ambition can take you. We have to have to wake up out of, I think, a, like a teenage dream of, uh, an, an Ayn Randian teenage boy dream of, of, of how to live life and become more mature, like like they in, in, in this in the sense they are in Europe. Uh, not saying that Japan, Japan has its own problems and has its own kind of pain body, and own deep issues which the inhabitants, um, you know, have trouble even seeing. Every country has those things, but that's the joy of traveling and actually living in other places and engaging in like you know not just going to tourist places but going to grocery stores and doctors' offices and you know, than the normal in working and getting a paycheck is that you get to, by being in another place, you get to see that, that, oh my God, these people are not dealing at all in the, in the same way as, as what, what people are dealing with in the United States. So yeah, again, I, I, I pin a lot of it on that kind of strange, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing Ayn Rand in here. It certainly existed far before Ayn Rand existed as a person, this kind of uh, mentality. Uh, I, I, and, and I don't ever want to be like unfair to my fa fellow temporary males and, 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 you know, pinning all the uh, um, uh, blame into, you know, this, this left brain style of psyche or, or whatever. But I have to say that like, something I think that changed me in many ways, besides being um, raised by very smart, strong, intelligent women, was uh, losing somebody, um, having something happen that you, and realizing that there are certain parts of life that you have no control over. And like there's certain and that and that actually more of life is like that than less. And, and I think there's a maturation that comes when you realize that you, you can be fucked in a certain sense or like the, the little individual ego can get and, and there's nothing that can do about it. And, and, you know, 
and then going beyond that and realizing, okay, there's also there's also a deeper place that is um, unfuckable in a certain sense is is very helpful um, as well. But I think even that is a and so when you when you experience that, she's like, okay, look, well, let's do the best we can to care for each other. You know, let let's let's look at the structures that we live in and, and try to make them so that they 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 serve as you know many people to a certain baseline as possible because life is short and you can't just some sometimes you don't have any bootstraps at all and there's no shame mm-hmm. in that and and, it, and you have to be able to feel that okay there are some things I just can't I, maybe I can't do and that doesn't mean that I'm you know any lesser in a in, in a sense of being worthy being loved yeah really beautifully put wow that is really powerful yeah so Thanks for letting me go on. I'm feeling like way, way more loquacious than I usually am. <laughs> no, this was wonderful. Thank you for sharing all this. I'm just captivated by your story. I, you know, again, I, I heard it on Buddha at the gas pump, and uh, I really wanted you to come on and share with our audience because I just think that your your work is beautiful and your life is fascinating, and I'm grateful you could share that today. Well, well thank you. And I know you're wrapping up, but I, I feel like I should say one, one more. Of course, go for it. Um, I, I think it actually in so many ways it basically comes down to love. Uh, if, if I'm look, looking at human beings, so many of the problems that people face, uh, you know, I'm not talking about the practical level, but so many of the problems and, and the just comes down to uh, not having enough love, uh, which which is exactly why I kind of do the work that I do, and I'm glad that there are people like uh, Gabor Mate, uh, for instance, or you know, people like my mother, you know, working more in the trenches, not famous like. Um, Gabber is now, but people working in the trenches trying to uh, um, give people a, a, a sense of connection, give people a, a, a deeper basis for self-worth than in, in all the things that, about us that can change. Um, connecting people to uh, an intrinsic and endemic uh, part of themselves which, which knows it's loved, uh, which, which is love. Now that's where it's a little bit different. That's that's where the what the mystics have discovered. I've discovered through coming back with, with the meditation practice is that there is a level where you know the, the love that I experienced from my mother didn't really ultimately come from my mother. I mean, I thought it had died when she died. What a tragedy! So many of us think that when somebody special goes out of our life, we think the love's never going to be there again. But you know, the thing that I was brought to with meditation practice was that the love is, has been there the whole time inside. That that's where that that's where the tap is that turns it on or off, and I just needed to come to a place where I could be at that tap. So that's I, I hope that everybody does whatever they need to do to get back to that love. Is it's there? It's it's in you. you know, we are the, we are the fish in the water, like Rumi talks about, who are missing the water. Wow, that's a beautiful. I know, right? That's, like That's so beautiful to close out. Thank you. <laughs> Margaret, do you want to ask the questions? Yeah. So now we have some fun questions to get wrapped up as we step out of the metaphysical and get into some just fun human questions. Are you ready for him, Ishtar? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, I'm ready. Let's James Lipton me right here. <laughs> All right. Okay. So our first question, if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Hmm. Of omnipresence. 
but we already have omnipresence. But no, <laughs> uh, uh, omnipresence, like total physical uh, omnipresence, because I just I want to be like Krishna and be in everything in, in a conscious sort of way. That just seems to be uh, uh, the, the most joyful possible state. I don't know if that counts as a superpower, but we're, we're going with that. Otherwise, flight. And there's just no reason, just because it's cool to fly. Uh, no, nothing deep about that. Yeah. All right. And then what is your favorite comfort food? Ooh. Um, gumbo. Gumbo. Ooh. I have not had a good bowl of gumbo in a long time. Do you have a favorite place to go for gumbo? I've had to make it myself because I've not lived in gumbo producing areas. So <laughs> um, I've not been to New Orleans yet. And when I do get to New Orleans, I'm going to find me a place where I can get some really good gumbo. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, like a good bowl of Beijing noodles, especially on a cold day, you know, with, with some, some mushrooms, a little, little bit of beef, bok choy, and, and hand-pulled northern Chinese noodles is, you know, wonderful. And what brings you the most joy right now in your life? Love. That the the meditation. If, if we, you know, love is maybe the same as joy, so that's not a good answer for the question. But uh, resting the the deep internal massage that that's you know still comes in meditation, uh, followed by watching other people uh, d- discover their own um, <laughs> their own inner reserve of, of silence and, and bliss and, and love. Um, I, I love being there. It's almost like almost like being there for a second birth, seeing somebody touch that and go like, oh my fucking God. <laughs> like, I didn't know that, you know, I could just back into that. Um, so that's, that's basically it. Wow, beautiful. And then the last one you already know, what are three songs that elicit the strongest emotions for you? And I'm so glad that you told because like I could have spent days trying to analytically go because there's so many different types of emotions <laughs> that are that are strong. Yeah. Uh, but I, I basically got it down to three. Okay, so in no particular order of importance, and this is not exhaustive really. Of, I'll start with a Beatles song, and it's it's a George Harrison song, and it's Here Comes the Sun. And I love that song. That, that one, Oof, from 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 Abbey Road. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That's that's it. That's number one. Um, no, number two, uh, I'll, I'll pull from the opera world, but with with Wagner, and and it has to be probably the um, the uh, the F- per- Percival's funeral march that that's used in the film Excalibur, um, to such great extent. That one that one just does me every time. Uh, and number three, it, it would be hard for me to keep Freddie Mercury's voice off of this list. And, and I actually have to pick that, that time in his life where I think he reached the apex of what his soul was trying to do when he, when he collaborated with the great Spanish singer Montserrat Caballé um, and, and made an album with her of often Puccini kind of styled songs, but they did everything. And one in particular is is called Insueño, um, Dream. And it's a, it's a duet between the two. Beautiful song. But the whole Barcelona album that they cut, uh, there, there are many songs on that which uh, registered the same feeling. 
All right, I'm going to look that song up because we're big Freddie Mercury fans in this house. So. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Him, 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 and Montserrat were just were just wonderful together. Just, just beautiful, beautiful together. And um, he actually said she was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in wow. my life. And uh, yeah. And so um, they were soul friends. All right. So before we close out, one last thing that we all do together whenever we finish our podcast is we all do a gratitude prompt. Agnes, why don't you kick Mm. us off with our gratitude prompt? (laughs) Ishtar, what are you grateful for today? Uh, I know. Hard question. (laughs) No, no. I'm just feeling into it. I'm, I'm, um, I'm grateful for a million things. But I, I, I'm just grateful that I, I, I'm here, that, that I get to, um, I'm, I'm grateful for the last breath I had uh, and, and the opportunity to kind of continue in this, in this body. So that's, that's. That's beautiful. Margaret? Oh, gosh, I know it's so cliche, but I really am just so grateful for this conversation because, you know, we've been moving and it's been a very stressful time in my life and and I think that this conversation for me was such a breath of fresh air and in Ishtar, like what you said at the very end about love, you know, we're all love. Like, it's like, oh, I just, I needed to hear that. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Agnes, what are you grateful for today? Um, definitely this conversation. I think that what you had to say, Ishtar, about love I agree with Margaret that was very refreshing and um, Margaret and I have talked a lot recently about um, just uh, both of us moved in the last few months and things are just really stressful and I know for myself I get very wrapped up in like the whole materialistic societal pressure of things and Mm. I get like like I have an attitude and I just don't want to do anything and I'm like angry at the world and it's so hard to get into that slump and so difficult to get out of it and I think that this conversation it was um like it almost felt like I was like under a drug because it really Mm -hmm. kind of pulled out that inner peace of um what it means to be human because all of this bullshit of stressing about doing the dishes and getting to work on time and appeasing other people that is so unnecessary and I I just feel very grateful for that reminder from you well thank you thank you both for having me here as a as a guest of course thank you yes thank you conversation We believe in the power of taking even one minute a day to breathe and find gratitude in the little things. Wherever you are, if you are able, close your eyes, take a deep breath in and out, and reflect on something that you are grateful for today. We are so honored that you could join us in this discussion today, and we hope you have a beautiful week.
If you enjoyed today's Unrefined Woman podcast episode, please be sure to like, subscribe, and share. To check out other episodes, please visit our website at unrefinedwoman.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. To stay in the loop and receive access to additional content, please follow us on TikTok, username unrefinedwoman, and on Instagram at unrefinedwomanpodcasts. Special thanks to Walter Birdsong for the album cover, Margaret Rainey for our podcast music, Andrew Cioni for our gratitude prompt music, and Sean Butcher for editing and production. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.